Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. Early in my life, I felt like a man stuck in a woman's body. Then I was born. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It is the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining and always celebratory pipe smoking podcast or broadcast. I am your host, Brian Levine, and it is almost International Pipe Smoking Day 2015, so we've got a special episode for you this week. Yeah, and this week's show in uh, Pipe Parts going to talk about the Native Americans, or the Indians, the first pipe smokers, as we can call them. Uh, my guest tonight is an extra special guest. Rich Esserman has been in the hobby for many, many years, written a ton for the Pipe Smokers Ephemeris and the NASPC, and we're going to spend some time talking to him. Uh, music for uh, Johann Sebastian Bach. Yeah, I go back to the original pipe-smoking musician and rock star of his time. And we'll have a quick mailbag and a, a little uh, rave at the end of the show. So all that coming up to celebrate International Pipe-Smoking Day 2015, which is technically on Friday, February 20th, which means it's also the day before my wife's birthday, so I'll be out shopping. Uh but I hope that you all can gather somewhere for uh, International Pipe Smoking Day, hang out with another pipe smoker, friend of yours, or maybe uh, just spend some time on uh, the forums on PipesMagazine.com and chat on there with uh, pipe smokers from all around the world. Uh, while you're there, also make sure and check out, there's been a lot of new stuff put up on the uh, on the front page of the website. Uh, Ethan Brandt's been writing the new Speakeasy uh, the new speakeasy column and uh, Marshall or Butch Armstrong, who we had on before, has a new article up. Uh, my friend Steve Morissette's got a new article up on uh, coffee shop etiquette. Uh, and most recently, the story of a custom cob, which we'll uh, be uh, dealing with uh, Ricardo Santia, who was on the show just recently. So if you got some time on uh, Friday, hey, hop over to pipesmagazine.com. Read some of those great articles that are on the front page, and that's a way for you to celebrate International Pipe Smoking Day. All right, everybody, I want you to all sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you to the Sutliff Tobacco Company, and here we go for IPSD 2015. Meet Josh. Everyone at SmokingPipes.com holds customers as a high priority, but nobody interacts with them more personally than Josh. He's our professor of pipes, if you will. As a previous professor of history, educating the customer comes easily to him. He loves explaining the history of a particular pipe to a customer or coaching his customer service team. I love to help customers find that perfect piece for their collection. It's my job to make sure there's a smile on the other end of the line, and I'm more than happy to be the one to put it there. And although Josh's job can sometimes be quite demanding, he doesn't mind. He loves his job at SmokingPipes.com. Why? Because I don't just sell pipes. I smoke them. Call us at 1-888-366-0345. That's 1-888-366-0345. 
or check us out online at smokingpipes.com. We are quality. We are experts. We are smokingpipes.com. I'm not just a pipe smoker. I'm a Meerschaum pipe smoker. All of my pipes come from MeershamStore.com. They've been in business for 50 years, and I can trust that there will be no hassles. Orders are processed and shipped fast, and they have every shape you can imagine, including calabash, claws, dragons, horror, even a sexy series. MeershamStore.com, the most trusted Meersham store for 50 years. Welcome back. I forgot to mention, uh, tonight's show, 100% pre-recorded. Yeah, I'm actually recording this early Tuesday morning, and my yard is covered in ice and hoping we will be able to get to Harry Connick Jr. tonight. And uh, hopefully I'm not, uh, hopefully I get back from Harry Connick Jr. So I'm looking forward to that. In, uh, in just a few minutes, Rich, my discussion with him, will have that. Uh, in the meantime, for pipe parts, I thought it would be fun to go back to the Go back to the very beginning of pipe smoking, and the first times that we saw pipe smoking was from the Native Americans as the Europeans came over here to the uh, came over to North America. Uh, in fact, it was uh, it was commented that uh, a a French father who was traveling the Mississippi River. That's where the terminology came for what we call the uh, the, the modern day peace pipe or what the Indians might have called the calumet. Uh, it was even discussed that the peace pipe, although each different Indian tribe across the country used their own materials for the, for the pipe based off of where they were, uh, and you know, they, they'd use whatever was natural to the area that they lived in. But the reason the Europeans called it the peace pipe was... Because the minute that pipe was pulled out, there might be a there might be a battle going on amongst two warring tribes. The minute the pipe was pulled out, the battle was stopped. It was stopped dead in its tracks, and they sat down and smoked the pipe together. Uh, the pipe itself was sometimes filled with tobacco, but it was uh, it was originally used with tobacco and then some of the western tribes would use other herbs barks plant matter and uh you know had they smoked whatever was basically around them and i can almost guarantee you that the tribes in uh arizona new mexico wyoming colorado there wasn't a lot of tobacco out there for them to really smoke but they were smoking something in their peace pipes. Um, the beautiful part of it for me, and I think this is kind of one of the reasons why we all like to smoke pipes, and this is directly quoted from uh, Native Americans online, and it said that the pipe ceremony, which was the removing of the pipe and taking the pipe out, it was actually a sacred ritual for connecting the physical and the spiritual worlds. Uh, to the Indians, the pipe was a link between the earth and the sky. And I kind of looked at it, and I'm thinking about this as I was reading this stuff yesterday, uh, that it, it, in some ways, when you puff on the pipe, you really don't see the smoke, but it comes into your body, and then when you send it back out, it goes up into the atmosphere and kind of thins out. But 
the the way the Indians saw it was the pipe is our prayers in physical form. Smoke became becomes our words. It goes out, touches everything, and becomes a part of all there is. The fire in the pipe is the same fire in the sun, which is the source of life. And the reason why tobacco is used is to connect the world. Uh, the worlds is that the plant's roots go deep into the earth, and its smoke rises high into the heavens. Uh, and again, it talks about how there were several different kinds of pipes used, uh, but the pipe ceremony itself would uh, kind of pay homage to all the all the spirits. Uh, according to Eagle Man of the Ogala Sioux and author of the Mother Earth Spirituality, the Native American Paths to Healing Ourselves and Our World, uh, he says that most pipe ceremonies have the same intention, to call upon and thank the six energies. Uh, all of our Sioux ceremonies beseech the four directions, the earth and sky, and ultimately the great spirit. They see the, the, uh, the creator through nature, and we try, they try to emulate what the creator has made. Uh, so what they want it is they want to pay homage to everything, whether it be the uh, the setting sun in the west or the east where the sun comes up again or the south where the where the warmth comes from or the north where the where the cool winds come from and then they want to pay homage to the fire and the earth itself and at the same time it's a way to connect them spiritually so the pipe would be sat down and the other thing that I noticed uh, that I found interesting was that the pipe itself was after the after the initial ceremony of the seven different directions uh, the pipe was passed around to everybody in the circle and it went around three complete times so everybody got to it three complete times uh, but again the minute that pipe would come out everything would stop it was a way for them to connect sit down do the uh, get spiritual and uh, communicate with each other through through the smoke and through the enjoyment of the tobacco. And I wonder if that's not some of what we really like as pipe smokers. It's a chance for us to sit down and get in touch with all the directions in our life and clear our heads and connect spiritually with uh, with the smoke and through the taste and the smell and uh, might be a good way for all of us to uh, celebrate International Pipe Smoking Day is uh, maybe pay homage to all the different directions. And, hey, if anything, let's be thankful for the Indians for showing us how to smoke a pipe. All right, speaking of pipes, in just a few minutes, big pipe smoker Rich Esserman will be with me. This is Internet Radio. It's Saturday morning at the crack of dawn. The cool chill of night still clings to the air as the sun slowly rises over the misty surface of the lake. You've waited all week for just this moment. You know that today is going to be epic. Everything is here to ensure perfection, from the nice full cooler packed with your favorite suds to the other empty one, waiting to be filled with piles of freshly caught fish. Reaching into your pocket, you pull out your trusty briar and fill it with your favorite tobacco, aptly named Great Outdoors. It is the perfect smoke for moments like these. A strike, a flash, 
and your tobacco is lit as the delicious mixture ignites and swirls over your tongue and the deep rich burleys with a hint of sweet Virginia dance in your mouth. You smile, casting your first line into the water. The slowly widening ripples begin to stir as you feel the first bite of the day tug at your line. Now you know it truly is going to be a good day and a perfect time to enjoy the simple yet unmatchable pleasures of the great outdoors. Great Outdoors is another fine quality pipe tobacco manufactured by Sudliff, America's oldest tobacco company, and is available at fine tobacconists everywhere. Enjoy your perfect day by purchasing a tin today. There's nothing quite like working in my shop or smoking my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe, an American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. Check them out at corncobpipe.com. We are back on the International Pipe Smoking Day 2015 edition of the Pipes Magazine radio show. And as I've said, every year I try to get somebody special for this episode. So I am excited to welcome to the show Rich Esserman. Rich has been, uh, well, we'll get into it, but Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure, great pleasure. Well, we'll see if you say that at the end. Uh, when did you start smoking a pipe? Um, I started to smoke a pipe when I went away to college when I was about 18 years old. I was always interested in pipes from a long time before when I was a little kid. And uh, it seemed to be the right time. And I'm going to assume that you had the same path to pipe smoking we all did, where you got a, you, you started off with a pipe and some basic tobacco and kind of figured your way around? Yeah, so what happened is there was a place called the University Smoker. I went to school at Syracuse University. And um, they were right. There was a little shopping center right next to the, uh, the university. So I went there and I walked around and uh, it was owned by two brothers. And so I said, I'd like to smoke a pipe. So they said, well, come over here. And they gave me this wonderful, no-name Italian brand. And they told me something which I didn't understand, but I said, no fills in the pipe. I said, okay. And then they said, here, come on into this tobacco area, the humidor, and pick out what you like. So I picked out a, a black Cavendish, as, as everybody does, and um, went back and tried to smoke the pipe, which I had great difficulty doing. How long did it take for you to find out what you liked in pipe tobacco and what you liked in pipes? Well, that's a great question because I smoked a pipe on and off for about three or four years. And the most expensive pipe, the best pipe I ever bought was this Lorenzo Umpaw, Apple Umpaw. And it cost $40 and they gave it to me for thirty-two fifty. And they still couldn't get anything to smoke right. And um, the professor said, why don't you try my tobacco, Sobrani 759. I took one puff of that and I died. And I said, never again. (laughs) And nothing happened for quite a few years. My father, uh, who's no longer with us, uh, for my graduation present in 1975, said, Rich, here's a nice gold-colored duster. So that car became mobile around Syracuse. 
And um, I drove out to a tinderbox and uh, walked around. And in the tinderbox, the guy only had high-quality pipes, just tremendous pipes. And there were three pipes that I saw. One of them was a Savinelli Autograph Zero, $270. And I said, oh, my goodness, I love it, but there was absolutely no way it was an impossibility that I could buy that pipe. So I said, what about this other Savinelli? It was a number five Savinelli Autograph Sandblast. And he said, yeah. So I put my $15 down. And after about four or five weeks, that's the pipe. So he said, you get two free ounces of tobacco with this pipe. And I said, great. And I went over to the thing counter, and I pulled out a black cabinet jar, and he said, I'm not going to allow you to smoke that in this Savinelli. (laughs) (laughs) And I I said, what do you mean? What do you mean you're not going to let me smoke? He says, you're not going to ruin that pipe with this tobacco. Here, let me give you something. So he gave me something, and it was a tin of Sobrani white tin. So I was nervous. I said, okay, okay, I'll take it, I guess. I'll take it. Went back to my room off campus, and I took out that beautiful Savinelli. I was looking at it, and then I I opened up the white tin, and I said, oh, man, I'm going to be messed up here, going to be screwed up because, you know, but what's it going to be? So I smelled it and put it in the tobacco, tobacco in the pipe, and then lit it up. And that was the start of the beginning right there. That one bowl of tobacco was one of the greatest experiences that I ever had in my life. And at that point, right then and there, that one bowl, I said, I'm going to start collecting high-grade pipes. And that's how I got started. So for you, it was a combination of the pipe and the uh, correct tobacco that sent you on your way. Absolutely. It was so far different experience. It would be like if I was eating, I always said this, if I was eating at a diner and getting, you know, a very low cut of meat, and then somebody said, well, let's go to a great steakhouse. Let's buy you, you know, a $50 porterhouse steak. And you see there's a huge difference. (laughs) And the light bulb went on. Um, let's fast forward a little bit. When did you first hear of the Pipe Smokers Ephemeris and Tom Dunn? Uh, Another good question. I was living, I went back, what happened is I really wanted to become at one point in my life a professor of philosophy. And I got accepted to grad school and they all wrote back saying, and they wrote back to everybody who was involved. In, in, in philosophy at the time. If you could do something else, we highly recommend it because there are no jobs. <laughs> my father had an accounting firm, so I decided, well, philosophy to accounting, all right, let's do it. So I went and got a degree in accounting, went back, worked for my dad who had the accounting firm in, in Endicott, which is near Binghamton, New York. And we had a small pipe club, really small, wonderful pipe club. Of all the young guys, I was one of the oldest ones at 25. And everybody was psyched up. It was four or five different guys, six different guys. And so one of my friends, his name was Chris Simser, drove up to Lake Placid right before the Olympics and, saw, and met with the Brett Turner of Pipe and Book. Yeah. I don't think it's around right now. And he comes back, he calls me up, he says, Rich, you got to come over. I said, really? I got to come over? Why? He said, you got to read this thing. 
So I drove over that night, and he showed me the 15th anniversary pink cover of the Pipe Smoker Defense. And uh, I read it, and there was one little section by Fred Janusik on the 1978 uh, I-1 Rees, tremendous selling of, uh, of this doctor's collection of about 500 dentils. And that was it. I fell in love with a pipe smoke. Ephemeris. I wrote it down, and I said, can I join? And he said, okay. Is it fair to say that you, well, I guess out of everybody that I know, you probably had the closest relationship with Tom until the, uh, until the end of his life? Well, I would say, you know, Tom Dunn was a very private person. Um, and um, I used to write to Tom Dunn a lot, and I used to talk to Tom Dunn a lot. And, um, you know, he kept me appraised. At the very end, it was very much a shocking situation um, he had a rare form of cancer and uh you know it, it was just it was really it was just terrible i mean I, even to this day it bothers me you know it's over it's been about 10 years now almost 10 years and um but it's a shame but he was he was a really great guy give us all for for those that haven't seen the ephemeris which i'm not one of i've seen many of them uh give us all an idea of what the ephemeris was the ephemeris and I really became involved and it was sort of about 65 I think and uh, I became involved like I say in about 1979 um, was was it was just a, a clearinghouse of information now Tom Tom really was he smoked the pipe for many years and then at the very end he was smoking his pipe but he, he liked the literary aspect of pipe smoking he liked pipe smoking and things that surrounded pipe smoking so he decided that he was to do this little newsletter, and they called it the ephemeris because he figured people are going to get it, they're going to read it, and then throw it away. That was very ephemeral. <laughs> and uh, over the course of time, what happened was that, um, you know, people started to write in, and it became somewhat of a clearinghouse of information for different folks. There was no, you know, it's hard to talk to some, the younger generation today in the sense of to give them a perspective of what times were like back then about how hard it was to get information about pipes find out different pipe shops around the country it was impossible and Tom Dunn's um, newsletter missive whatever it is it became like a, a clearinghouse for all this information for people writing in and people finding out about different stuff and, that, and that's basically how it began now, what really impacted the ephemeris, what really changed the whole thing, was when Rick Hacker, who, again, his books now are long out of print, but he wrote a couple books on pipe collecting, pipe smoking. And he mentioned the ephemeris in, in an appendix in the back about a, um, some place you could go to really find out about pipes and pipe smoking. And right then and there, it took off. And then it really became truly international and really expanded. Now, for for the younger folks, it might be, you know, getting an issue of the ephemeris would be similar to logging into a forum and seeing what topics have popped up, because it would be all kinds of all kinds of different stuff, and you, you never knew what was in each issue. But Tom did it and didn't do it for a profit, did he? 
No, you know, Tom, I, I, even toward the end, when he we really was, had stopped smoking a pipe, um, he, he basically, you know, did it because he really loved the whole idea. He loved the whole idea about pipes and literary things relating to pipes. And his biggest passion, which most people don't realize, was hiking. So, you know, he used to go on a hike and have his pipes with him and so on and so forth. And he just liked the whole concept. So so, so the bottom line here is that, uh, you know, it was, that's, it was just a tremendous, tremendous undertaking for him. And he, and he did it on a voluntary basis. I mean, you know, you didn't have to send it any money. You could still, I, I think most people did send in some money to defray the cost and so on. But he did it out of labor of love. He really enjoyed doing it. You know, it's funny, but most people don't know this. But I used to write everything handwritten and send it in, and Tom used to then put it on the word processor or later on the computer and type it up. And one day I sent it in. I emailed him a, 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 a I emailed him, you know, a word document with my message. And he wrote back and he said, "Oh, you're doing this too." <laughs> and I said, "Oh, okay, all right." So I then I started to go back to handwriting. He loved doing that. He just really enjoyed doing it. It was it really, he loved it. Uh, did any of the uh, topics of conversation in the ephemeris get controversial? Um, I would say, except for one time with me, which is the <laughs> only time it probably got controversial. Uh, but I would say no. He, he really kept it on a more upbeat level. I mean, he wanted this to be, I use this in a good way, he wanted this to be an escape. He wanted, to, he wanted us to enter the world of pipes and literature and, and, and elevate ourselves to a higher level than the day-to-day -day stuff. But, but there was one controversy with, with me and the, the fellow collector, um, who actually is a, a sort of a buddy of mine, Fred Hanna, over, over um, you know, what makes a pipe a great smoking pipe. And I, and I really honestly think it was a confusion about what I was saying that got Fred, Fred sort of upset about what I was saying. So, you know, if you want, I can go into it a little bit. Yeah, we'd love, we've, we've heard the other side from Fred briefly. We'd love to hear your side. Yeah, so what happened is, what happened is, um, I, uh, I, I, I believe that, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a question about what makes a great smoking pipe. And, whether it has to be expensive to be a great smoking pipe or whether it has to be a particular maker to be a great smoking pipe. And does a particular maker's pipe smoke all the same and so on and so forth. And my response was, you know, I wanted to give more credit to the pipe maker because, you know, the thing is a, a, a pipe maker can take a, a, an average piece of briar and make it into a really terrific pipe. On the other hand, I know one thing, and I used to, I talked to many, many uh, pipe makers, and I remember having this discussion with Bo Nord about, about the briar itself, and he said, look, he said, if you go into my shop, he said, you know, I have briar all over the place. Before I work on any briar, I do two things. I sniff it, and I lick it. And he said, if it doesn't smell good and it doesn't taste good, then I'm not going to use it to make one of my pipes. So the fundamental thing is that the briar itself has to be a decent piece of wood. But then what do you do with that piece of wood after? Is to me, makes the pipe great. I mean, and, and, the, and the briar itself, when it gets to the pipe maker, it's not like they just, it just 
magically happens that they happen to get the piece, you know, they cut it out of the ground and they have to get rid of all the tannins and all the other stuff in there. As Bill Taylor used to call it all the blood. And it's got to and it's got to be boiled properly so it doesn't crack. And it's got to be aged at the play at the uh, at the briar mill, and then it's got to come out to you, and you have to age it properly. And there's a, just a tremendous, tremendous amount of things that have to be done before that briar can even be worked on. So, so I wanted to recognize that as well. And then I wanted to say, look, if you have a great pipe maker, the chances are you're going to get a great pipe. Versus, versus someone who where where it's not a great pipe maker or it just runs through a manufacturing process, and so that created a problem because you see what I, what people were taking that to mean was, in order to get a really good smoking pipe or to have a great experience smoking a pipe, you had to buy like a thousand dollar pipe, and so it became like an elitist attitude, which is what I wasn't saying at all. We're going to take a break right here. When we come back, we're going to talk about some uh, very elite large size pipes. So stay with us. We'll be back in just a minute. The Carolinas and the tobacco tradition have been woven together generation after generation. From the Blue Ridge Mountains to the coastal low country, It's an integral part of our culture and heritage, building our beautiful tapestry. Cornell and Deal is proud to blend our pipe tobaccos in the Carolinas. Our history with tobacco dates back to the mid-1800s, and in that time we've perfected a variety of blends. The Carolinas have given us the perfect backdrop to do just that. Whether you're a fan of the rich Virginias, bold Latakias, spicy Periques, or unique aromatics, We've got a tobacco that's just right for your discerning taste buds. At Cornell and Deal, we live all things pipe tobacco. Blending it, smoking it, and enjoying the company of those who share our excitement. Tobacco, it's what we do. Stop by CornellandDeal.com. We are back. Visiting with Rich on International Pipe Smoking Day 2015. Well, not exactly the day, but we're celebrating it all week long. Um, so when did you... All right, you're, you're known for liking big pipes. When, when and how did the big pipe enjoyment begin? Um, it actually began right from the beginning. I was always attracted to large pipes. Just visually attracted to them. I always liked them. Although I did at one point have a collection of very uh, moderate-sized pipes. When I used to live in, in uh, Endicott, the Binghamton area, I used to come home for lunch. And um, I wanted to smoke a pipe for 30 minutes, and I used to have a really great collection of small Rhodesians and bad bulldogs, which I loved. And, um, and then at night I would smoke, you know, a couple bowls in, in larger pieces. So... Uh, because the thing with me is, is that I'm a, I'm a, I smoke faster than most people. I don't know why. I try to slow it down, which I do, but I, I enjoy puffing on the pipe. So where someone might take a small pipe, like my buddy Dave Fields, who's, who's imported pipes and collected pipes for many, many years, you know, could look at one of my pipes and say, this is like a four-hour smoke for me. <laughs> I would say, for me, it's like an hour and a half. So if I get too small a pipe... 
I don't get the I don't get the time that I want, which is about an hour and a half smoke. And so that's why I got bigger and bigger. And then, of course, you know, initially, I I went. In, I used to drive down every other every other uh, month, New York or Philadelphia. And I really got into Dunhills. I love Dunhills. I went to their store in Fifth Avenue. What a what a great shop! I could spend another twenty minutes just talking about that store. And um, but then I went and I found out there was like eight or nine or ten other shops in Manhattan. So every every time I went down there, I would get there at about ten and leave at five at night. And I would spend the whole day doing a pipe tour, which I wrote about and Tom never printed until way later. But but I I would go. So one time I went into Elliot Knockwalder, um at a store there, and um, I went down and he he showed me a photo of this. Huge Dunhill Magnum in this woman's hand. And he says, I'm going to get this pipe. Are you interested? Because I had talked to him. You know, I was interested in big pipes. And I said, absolutely, I would be 100%. He quoted me a price that was incredibly low, and it never came in. Oh, I was it. What a disappointment. So I, I, uh, I had talked to a few people. And what happened is um, I sort of got in after the ephemeris. I got involved with what I'll call it, the national collecting scene. And I got invited by a fellow. Um, and he was putting on a show in St. Louis, December 3rd and 4th, 1982. And he invited. It was a private-only show. And so I went there, and a fellow that I met who I became good friends with, Dr. Phil Bennett, Said, he said to me and my buddy Ed Lehman, would you like before the show to see my Dunhill bag privately? And I said, sure, of course. And he, and he showed us his pipes, and there was one in particular in 1939, bent from Canadian patent. And I said, Phil, someday I'm going to get that pipe from you. And that started me on my quest. To give Dunhill Magnums. That pipe was the epitome of everything that I ever wanted. It was a shell. It had phenomenal blast, great shape, great size. And um, having been smoking Dunhills, I knew they were great smoking pipes. And that's what really started me on the path to collecting Dunhill Magnums right there. Now, describe for us what exactly, what what is the size of a Magnum pipe? funny because the, the term magnum now has no meaning and other collectors known as mr can of the ebay tony Saturn, wants me to write the definitive book in fact i've been approached by a publisher to write a book on magnums and and, and i and i probably will at some point um but you know at the time a magnum really referred to dunhill a very large dunhill and you know because there were so few known when I first began to collect, there was about six or seven known in the world, at least in the art collecting community, that um, you know, they, if I was, it was really a, a bend made in 1926 with a bowl height of about two and three quarters, maybe two and seven eighths inches. And that's what was meant by a magnum. And you said, oh, I had a Dunhill magnum. That's what everybody thought about. And then, of course, I developed some terms because I started to collect them in the late 80s. I was able to get my first one. And then I began collecting them, and people knew I was interested. So early on in the 90s, when people had a pipe like that, they would contact me. And I discovered that some were a little smaller. Some were 
two and five eighths inches. So I coined the term pocket magnet because just to think of the German battleship, the Graf Spee, which is a pocket battleship. So I used it. I thought, wow, this is like smaller than the big one. So it's a pocket. And uh, so, you know, that's, that's, that's what happened. Then I discovered there were different shapes. Like, can I tell you a story about a weird thing that happened? Yeah, please. Yeah, so I was known for this again. I started to develop this reputation, and I wrote about it in the ephemeris a little bit. So what happened is uh, this guy called me up, and he said, uh, I, I, I have a friend in Washington, D.C., this guy I know he has a huge collection of pipes. Can you help him sell some of them? And I said, sure, you know. I'm going to pick up a little pocket change. And so he called me up, and he says, oh, this guy has a Dunhill Magnum bent. And I said, he does? And he described it to me, gave me the dimensions. And um, I said, well, you know what I'll do? I'll work it out with this guy so that, you know, he can give me this as, like, the commission. I don't really want the money. I just want the pipe. So he sent it up to me, and I opened up the box. And it turned out to be a pot, a Magnum pot. How do you get confused? The bend of the pot. I got no clue. But I, you know, there's only one other one that was has ever been seen. I happen to pick that one up too, but that's just wacky to me. So, is it is it safe to say that in order for a pipe to qualify as a magnum for you, it's got to be at about double the size of a traditional Group Three or Group Four bowl? Yeah, yeah, I would say so. And so what happened with me was, you know, one great thing about pipes, and this is what I, I try to tell people, you know, I've been doing this for 40 years, and I'm probably more enthusiastic about it now than I was when I started, you know, is that you never know it all. And if you think you know it all, you're an idiot. And so you do. I mean, because there's just, you know, this is an oral tradition. People don't keep records. And, you know, there's always something out there to be discovered, which to me makes it really interesting. So what happened is I had a nice collection. I probably had around uh, about 13 or 14 items in the late 90s. And I got really lucky because at one show, I uh, these people, uh, the letters, they had a pipe shop out in uh, out in uh, uh, Portland, Oregon, and they brought these two pipes. They were getting they retired, and they were selling their pipes, and they had uh, a bunch of really huge K Woodies, which my buddy again Tony Satterman bought them, and I got these two unsmoked Dunhill Magnums. I thought that's the epitome. That's it. And then all of a sudden, one day on eBay, when it was sort of a young thing, 2001, um, all of a sudden this thing appeared. It was a bulldog pipe, and it's stamped ODG. And everybody said, are you sure? It's amazing. It's amazing. And um, I got that pipe, and that was like another class of Dunhill. Another huge. That pipe was about just slightly under three inches tall, but it was like three and three-eighths inches wide. And then I found later on in the, in the last ten years, there were some more made. They're even larger than that. So... That's what I call a double magnet. Wow. <laughs> what is the, what's the biggest pipe you own? Um, the biggest pipe that I own, I own several huge pipes. Now remember, now one of the key things about owning a pipe for me is I got to smoke it. Yeah. If I'm not smoking a pipe or the pipe can't be smoked by me, I'm not buying it. I don't care what it is. In fact, I did have one huge Costello 
in an exceptionally rare uh, uh, graining condition. It's called a, a 360, where the bowl rate, the grain radiates out. And and on the sides of the panels, it's all bird's eye. There's no grain at all. It's a bird's eye. And it was just oh, wow. too big to smoke, that particular thing. But the biggest pipe that I own now is a Costello Black Sea Rock. It's got about a five and a quarter inch bowl height on it. <laughs> about two and three quarters across. And then I have big dunhills. The biggest dunhill I have is like about 11 inches long. And it's about three and three quarters inches high, two and a five-eighths inches across the, the panel. You know, and, um, but those are the biggest ones. And you got to learn how to pack them. I mean, I could spend another hour talking to you about how to pack these big pipes. Yeah, so, all right, well, let's do that. Because let, let's say I'm interested and, yeah, I want to... I, I've got some larger pipes in my collection. Nothing, nothing that would qualify as a magnum, but I've got a couple of pipes that I can smoke for an entire football game or uh, this time of the year, an entire NASCAR race. But I find that towards the bottom of the bowl, I start getting muddier faster and have some issues with it. If we want to learn how to smoke a magnum, who else? Who else better to go to than you? So, uh, give a, give me some tips on how to smoke a larger pipe. Okay. Well, the first thing you got to do, in my opinion, is is pack it properly. And so, with a larger pipe, you can't like start packing it in tight. If you like a tighter pack, you can't pack it tight from the beginning. From the beginning, because if you do that. You're going to block up the air hole, and then as, as you start smoking it, it's going to burn hotter. It's going to smoke probably pretty nicely until about halfway down the bowl, and you're going to have problems. So what you need to do is you need to take your tobacco. And one of the key things that I learned was I separate all my tobacco. I don't put my tobacco – when I have tobacco, I don't, I don't have clumps. Like, you know, sometimes you get a brand-new tin, and you take it out, and it's all stuck together and I, I go through and I spend some time taking all those leaves, all that stuff, and basically just separating it so that it's loose. So when I pick it up, everything's loose. So you, so get, all, take, you get all the clumps and any of the stems out and you separate everything and make sure it's all loose? That's correct. Okay. Because that's, a, that's the first key to smoking. Uh, in my opinion, any size pipe, but in particular a large piece. So once I do that, and I'm not going to get into the blending aspect right now, right this second, but once I do that and I'm going to smoke a particular blend, first of all, I look to see what cut it is. So if it's a moderate cut, you know, and it's not a flake or anything like that, separated, what I'll do is I'll start dropping it and I'll take a little bit of a clump, just drop it in. Until I get about halfway up the bowl. Now I'm pushing down slightly on it. As I get halfway up the bowl, I put another thing in, and then I start pressing a little bit. And then as I get three-quarters of the way up the bowl, now I'm really starting to compact the pipe. But what that does at the bottom is getting more compact, but it's not, like, super compact. So the, so the draw will be there when I begin to light the pipe up. And then, and then the critical thing is, so I get this pipe, and it's tightly packed, but I, I'm always checking the draw. Now, here's the key most people never think about, don't even know about. I always have dry tobacco. 
on the yep. side. You know, sometimes a tin will pop or something like that. And what I do is, on top of that pipe, I will sprinkle a slight layer, very slight layer of dry tobacco. So when I light up my pipe, guess what? The dry tobacco takes hold. And I don't get this thing where, like, because I like boards that are an inch. If you get an inch and a quarter board, believe me, you got problems lighting it up if you don't do it properly. What happens is with that little layer of dry tobacco, I light it up with a match, and the whole top goes. The whole top starts going. And then what I do is you got to learn how to use a tamper. I take that tamper and I push, I push the the flame across. I push because I only use matches, so I push the, the the fire across the bowl and I get it evenly lit up. So you're using the you're using the dry pieces to to get that starting layer going and getting it locked in and kind of locked in place with a good ash on top. And does that help hold it in place as well? Oh yeah, what it does is it starts. It starts to get the bowl, the the bowl smoking evenly all the way down, but but you got to remember now you're only you're smoking it, so you got the thing lit up. I have to tend to it. What happens with a larger pipe, unlike a smaller pipe, is that you know it goes through various stages. And to me, you got to. I don't like to. I don't like to take a pipe and tap the ash off. I just don't like doing it. Some people do it and they relight up. I like to develop, this is where you've got to have the right tamper, and you have one of those, you can pull the tobacco away from the side a little bit. You pull the tamper in just a little bit, and you open up an air hole. And then you can keep the fire going, and then you can tamp over it, and the bowl keeps going down. I rarely have more than two or three lights max. If I have three lights, it's a bad smoke. I usually light the bowl up at the top, get it going, and maybe one time in the middle of the bowl, it might go out, and that's all I that's all I light up. I don't light up three, four, five, six, seven times. Wow! But you're it's, also puffing a lot faster than, uh, or it sounds like a lot faster than most people are. Yeah, I'm puffing faster, but it still could go out if you're not tending to it properly. You see what I'm saying? Because what, what's happening is is that by by using the tamper properly and opening up the air, or, let's say I go to one side of the the bowl and I just open up a little air hole to get the, to get the air in underneath and I tamp over it. That's the key. So that's really just kind of working the first you get the layers and then you work the you, you work the fire like you would in a fireplace where you just keep it getting some air. Right, that's it. Very simple. Once you learn how to do it. <laughs> very simple yet uh, very yeah. complicated all at the same time. Uh, stay with us. We're going to take another break right here. And then when we come back again, we'll talk about, uh, some more of your, uh, your special tobacco blending and then the upcoming New York pipe show. So don't go away. We'll be back in just a minute. This is internet radio. Craftsmanship, history, tradition. 
These are the hallmarks of all quality products. From the finest wines bottled in France to the most highly engineered automobiles manufactured in Germany, Denmark has been the one country in the world where craftsmanship, history and tradition have for centuries created the finest pipe tobaccos in the world. Since 1887, the Halberg family have led the pipe tobacco industry through their ownership of Mac Baron Tobacco Company and they continue to create the most sought-after blends in the world today, just as they did over 100 years ago. In keeping with their long history of providing the world with the best tobacco on earth, Mac Barron is proud to announce their newest creation, Modern Virginia, as a loose-cut version and a flake version. Bright and dark, rich Virginia tobaccos have been combined with just a hint of burley for strength in this soft and smooth smoke with delicious fruit undertones. As the world leader in flake tobacco production, Mac Barron is sure that this blend will appeal to the true connoisseurs of traditional Virginia flake tobacco, as well as those who like their tobaccos on the sweeter side. Enjoy the culmination of centuries of experience by picking up a tin of Modern Virginia from Mac Barron Tobacco Company. Available at fine tobacconists everywhere. There's nothing quite like a good book. Or my genuine Missouri Meerschaum corncob pipe. An American legend since 1869. It's the coolest, smoothest pipe I've ever owned. See for yourself at corncobpipe.com. Welcome back. Again, we're still visiting with uh, Rich Esserman, the uh, world-famous uh, big pipe guy. Um, so now that, now that the ephemeris is no longer with us, uh, you've switched over to writing in the NASPC Pipe Collector, and you send in... How do you describe what you, what you write for the Pipe Collector? Well, my column is called News and Views, and um, the... the the former founder and editor, you know, Bill Unger and I, 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 I told Bill I'm going to start writing for the magazine on a more regular basis after the ephemeris went. Um, I just want to make one comment before I do that. You know, yeah. when I when I wrote for the ephemeris, toward the end I used to write really literally thousands and thousands of words. And I, it, it developed that way primarily because one time, you know, I used to write in regular basis, and Tom Dunn would, would publish, you know, maybe a couple paragraphs. And that was great, because that's all anybody ever got. And one day he wrote me, he said I was going to get four paragraphs. And I said, super, four paragraphs, oh my goodness. And it turned out to be four pages. And that four pages developed into such, he got such a phenomenal response that he wrote me, and he, we, I talked to him, and he said, you know, just keep writing whatever you write. And then over time, it just got to be a point where, you know, he edited some of the stuff I wrote, but, but I just wrote whatever I wanted to write, and, I, and it was really tremendous. So when I went to, the, when I went to Bill Unger, I said, look, though, you know, I could write every newsletter, the whole newsletter, basically, but I'm, I'm interested in dominating the newsletter. So what I'll do is I'll always keep it to three or four pages. Some people have said, you know, I should write more, but, you know, I, I write because I love to write. What I'm doing is basically going through, it's like if you and I were having a conversation every day, and I said, oh, did you see this pipe on eBay? And, oh, yeah, I did. And I said, yeah, you might be one I saw 10 years ago, you know, when we were at the show in Chicago. And, yeah, that's right, and we talked to the importer. He said he never saw another one. So it's that kind of thing that I'm writing about, what's happening in real time. And I'm trying to keep up to date in the whole pipe world, which has radically changed over the last few years. Then at the same time, I'm trying to do an assessment about things 
people should consider when they collect their pipes, ways of looking at the world. And I'm not interested in telling somebody what to do. Like, I'm not going to tell you, you know, you should do, you should go and get this pipe and collect this pipe because Rick Testament said that's what you should do. I'm more interested in asking you, what are you interested in? You telling me, well, you know, I really wanted to get into Costello's. I don't know what to do. I'm, there's so many of them. But, and then I would say, well, let's talk about what shapes do you like? What sizes do you like? And how much money do you want to spend? And what the finish should be? And then what I do is I try to art, try to have you articulate what it is you like. And then all of a sudden you begin collecting and you're happy. Which is the whole point of my, my, my uh, news and views. Let me ask you one one note that I saw relating back to the magnums again, and this is yeah I I don't know if there is a real answer to this question, but you've become known for the for the large size pipes, and now you have I, I'm pretty sure every large size pipe coming out of the woodwork being presented to you. Uh, how do you handle it when a pipe maker says, "Rich, I've made a pipe for you." And then you look at it, and it just doesn't, for whatever reason, it doesn't flip your trigger. Well, that's a good question. And I get dealers who buy pipes. They say, hey, I got this pipe for you. And I have to say, sorry, no. Um, what, what they, so, so there are very few pipe makers, first of all, that I order any particular pipe from. Um, you know, I, 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 my great friend, Mike Butera, makes a few pipes now every year. I order a pipe a year from him, a magnum-sized piece, and he knows exactly what I want, and I know exactly what he's going to make in terms of capability. I'll say to him, look, I want to make a big, big use of that. These are the dimensions might go to it. And then I want him to use his creative ability to come up with what he thinks is a great piece. But, and Michael Parks also from Canada, who makes a great pipe. I can say to Michael, here's what I'm interested in, and Michael can come back with a piece I know I'm going to like. But for the most part, it's very hard. It's very hard for me to articulate it and have the guy do it right. So I don't really order it. I don't really do special orders from people. If people come up to me and say they have a great pipe, it's not what I like. At this stage of my life, I just say, you know, thank you. But I'm really not interested in it. Because yeah, that that's got to be uh, after a while that does put you in a tough spot sometimes where they say hey we've made one to your exact dimensions and this is the pipe for you and then you've got to sorry to interrupt but what I what I what I wanted to say was that when people sort of do that and they, and it's been done before so I had a situation in which Costello actually revived a a, a grade called the Big Line. There were pipes that were made with me in mind. Uh, Marco Parencenzo, who is the importer, came over to it. I, I talked him into coming into this pipe shop near a town where I'm at. So he was a Costello dealer, Ridgewood, New Jersey, and he brought his whole inventory right before the Chicago show. <laughs> and that was one of the greatest things in my whole life. I saw all the pipes. There was like about 300 Costellos. They were, I mean, I wish I was a multi, multi-millionaire. I would have bought everything. <laughs> and, I mean, it was like being a kid in a candy store to the nth degree. And so, you know, 
I brought him some special pieces that normally I don't take to a show. I said, here's a big band, Costello, it's got script on it, with a gold band that was made around 1980-ish. And he looked at that pipe and he brought his assistant over. He said, look at this pipe. And it had the Costello, and he was amazed by it. It's the only one that I've ever seen like this. It's a big 65 bench, but, but huge, really huge. So he went back to the factory, and he told Franco Copo, Kino Copo, about it, and they made a series of big bents in their own way. Not that they didn't duplicate this pipe, and they, they used the stamp Big Line, which is an old Costello stamp that was used maybe for a year or two back in the early 70s. And um, so, you know, he, he said, here, I, and I was fortunate. I have to work through a dealer, of course, and it sell directly to me. And he contacted the dealer, and he says, is Rich interested in this? And I definitely was. <laughs> All right, now let's let's talk about your tobacco for a minute, because you do some, uh, some <coughs> different kind of blending that I I think I you're the only one that I know of that does it, where you take vintage tobaccos, but you also use a current-day base blend, if I understand yeah. it correctly. So describe yeah. that for us so that we can understand what you're doing. Well, this all came about in an accidental way. Around 1995, 20 years ago now, I was sitting and I was, I lit up, I was smoking a, um, I think it was a, one of my magnums, 26 magnum bent. And so I loaded it up with, with a, with a very old Dunhill mixture called My Mixture 1066, which has been reputed to be Zerbar. <laughs> and, and I lit it up and I didn't like it. It's not right. Then I used to buy tobacco from the London store called Baby's Bottom. That was a lettuce blend, and I emptied out my pipe, and I put the thing in it, and I lit it up, and it was too strong. I didn't like it. And I said, oh, geez, you know, what a waste here. I got all this tobacco open up. I'm not going to use it. And I said, you know what? Let me just mix it, too. So I put 50-50 in, lift the pipe up, and it was perfect. <laughs> So, so from then, I started to do mixing, say, two or three different blends together to get the taste that I want. You know, I'd measure it out and know the proportions and write it down. And then it got to a point where I'm doing five or six different blends. And then what I would do is, you know, I talked to the people at Dunhill, and, I, and I've talked to many people. And, you know, Dunhill, well, they had their, you know, 30,000 my mixture. Yeah. In many cases, they used to have what's called the base blend. A lot of mixtures were developed off of that base blend. So you get number 10, which is an old mixture that was a heavier Latakia. You get number 27, it was a little lighter. Number 73 was really heavy. But it was from the same base. And so what I decided to do was, as I was mixing up my tobaccos, I would begin to overblend for that mixture. So I mixed every tobacco, every every bowl, separately. I didn't do like a big mat. I'm going to put two ounces here, eight ounces there, mix it up. And so what I did was I overblended and I put the over the overblending in a bag, and then over time that that became what I call a base mixture, <laughs> and so that began to melt. And so I have a combination of the new tasting tobacco that wasn't melted yet; they were separate tastes, and I'd mix it with the base mixture, and I only go now by smell. I don't think about proportions. I have a very 
great familiarity with a lot of different blends. And I know if it's this blend and this blend and this blend, I want it to come out in a certain way. And now, Greg Peason has a bunch of new stuff. And it, I don't know what he did, that he did differently than before, but I love a lot of his new stuff. And it's just tremendous. What, a, what, a, what an aroma and what a taste. And are you using his stuff now as the as a base, and then adding the older stuff to it? No, I'm using his stuff like you would add spices to my mixture. So, so like if you go out to dinner and you want to have a little use the meat, and you put a little salt on it, maybe you put a little pepper on it, and maybe you put something else on it. That's how I'm using his tobaccos. His tobaccos create an element of depth and taste. On top of the old tobaccos, because, you know, people talk about old tobaccos. I can, spend, again, spend another two hours on old tobacco. But, you know, sometimes you know, people say, well, you get an old tobacco, it's, it's faded out or whatever. People don't understand. In the old days, no one used Latakia like they do now. Nobody did. Nobody had these phenomenal heavy Latakia blends. They used a lot of Oriental, and they did have some Latakia. So no matter what, you're going to get a lighter kind of mixture. So like Greg Pease, like his new Gaslight, that's a heavy-duty mixture. You put a you put a little bit of that into an old blend, and all of a sudden, whammo. You get an unbelievable taste. So it just lightens up and, and awakens the, uh, the flavor. Absolutely. All right, we're running out of time, so let's jump forward to the one thing that you can promote because it's coming up. It's the March on March 7th, the New York Pipe Show in Newark, New Jersey, and this is the 22nd year? Yeah, for this particular show, you know, we used to have four a year before anti-smoking regulations came into being, and uh, but the one show now is, is, is been going on for quite some time, and... Uh, you know, it's, it's a show where people come in for the day. It's the kind of show that we have dealers who come in and they there's a lot of buying, selling, and talking, and so on and so forth. And, you know, we're, right now we're almost sold out. We have a few tables left. And I'm waiting to hear from a couple people. But it's really an exciting day. It's, it's a great day. We get a good attendance, you know, and um, everybody who comes says we really enjoy the show. Show opens at uh, 10 a.m. right outside of the uh, Newark International Airport, so it's definitely easy to find. And uh, I'll be there on uh, March 7th for the whole day. Yeah, and we're looking forward to seeing you. And, and So people can come in, they can get different types of tobaccos, really see what's going on in the world, talk to their friends, you know. It, it's really a very nice time. And there's a, And there's a great little restaurant attached to the hotel, too. And we've, we've been going there forever. We don't really go outside the hotel once we get there. And uh, this is a, it's a great place. You know, nice, nice people. If you want more information on the show itself, all the details are on pipesmagazine.com under pipe events. If you want to contact Rich directly, got a question about the big pipes or the show or anything, uh, Rich's email is bigpipeguy, B-I-G-P-I-P-E-G-U-Y at gmail.com. Right. Yeah. 
And then we will wrap this up with the fast five final questions. No wrong answer, no right answer, just whatever comes to your mind, and nobody escapes the fast fives. Are you ready? Yep. All right, what's your favorite pipe? Um, an O.D.H. Dunhill. Hold on. And I bet it's big. It's huge. <laughs> what's your favorite tobacco? Uh, my favorite tobacco is an older blend called Sullivan's OX. And that's actually one I've never heard of. Is it a uh, is is it an English Oriental? Yeah, it's an English Oriental. It's called. It was it, it morphed into a Sullivan Special Mixture. Okay. All right. And what's your favorite drink? Um, my my actually, you know, I'm not a big I'm not a big alcoholic drinker. But I like a uh, single malt scotch. And when it's time to relax, is it a book, a movie, or music? Um, actually, I prefer I prefer two things: music and a book together. That's well, smoking my pipe, of course. Yeah, well, and it, and I'm going to guess it's going to be a big pipe. Last question, any particularly favorite pipe smoking related memory that we haven't hit on yet? Um, I guess the when you call it a memory, I would say um, my friendship, well, first of all, my friendships with so many people, that, that's what made this hobby so tremendous. I have so many friends who, who have helped me out in many, 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 many ways, but one friendship, the memory that sticks with me most of all is my old buddy Ed Lehman, who who I was friends with for for over twenty years, and we used to talk for every every week for hours, and I, I miss him tremendously. Another one more fellow is a guy named Jimmy Booth, who was a tremendous pipe collector in New York, who passed away around the same time about ten eleven years ago. Those are the memories that I think about when I, when I say, well, you know, the good old days, those, are, those were the good old days. Well, and these are the uh, new good old days, and hopefully we'll uh, keep having many more. Yep. Rich, thank you very much for your time. I'll uh, see you in a couple weeks. Great. You know, this is a pleasure, and um, this is just the tip of the iceberg. You know, I wish we had... Hours and hours, of course, most people would end up going to sleep. Uh, but but uh, really, it was a tremendous uh, pleasure. And I hope if you come to the New York show, anybody, and they, they want to ask any kind of questions, they just want to talk about things, you know, please, please feel free to, to come over. And for those of you that did fall asleep, you're probably having dreams of uh, giant pipes dancing around <laughs> with 50 uh, year old tobaccos in them. So. <laughs> Rich, thanks again. We'll uh, see you soon. Okay. Take care. We'll be back in just a minute. If you're looking for quality, if you're looking for a variety, and if you're looking for someone with reputation for nothing but the best, you're looking for CupOfJoes.com. CupOfJoes.com has hundreds of pipes to choose from and thousands of different pipe tobaccos. CupOfJoes.com is also your one-stop shop for Peterson Pipes, their exclusive line of Peterson Kelly Pipes. Check out their remodeled website at CupOfJoes.com and be sure to like them on Facebook, CupOfJoes.com. Quality products at extraordinary prices. 
Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achilles Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs, comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today. Well, I think we're going to have to have Rich on again because I've still got other notes that we didn't get to. Love to hear his uh, his opinions on ages of Dunhills and all that stuff and just, just tons of stuff to still get into with Rich. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed that. For music, I thought, you know what, for International Pipe Smoking Day, let's go to the original International Pipe Smoker. And it's a uh, box Fantasia and Fugue in D minor. However, this one's performed by the Canadian Brass. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Thank you. 
a group of all uh, low brass players and they're named Canadian Brass because they're from Canada. So uh, check them out. Search for them on iTunes or all that stuff. Uh, while you're on iTunes, if you get a chance, please leave us a rating or review there. We would appreciate that. Also, you can do that on Stitcher Radio as well. All right, let's jump right into the mailbag, directly into the mailbag and get a quick one out of the way because, uh, wow, we're running long. But it was fun. So uh, let's see. In regards to last week's show, uh, John Seiler writes, Future of pipe smoking, eh? I agree it won't go away. It will be more expensive and less available. Hence, buy it now. Store it away. It will become a more home recreational affair. I agree we will all become dabblers. Uh, John goes on to write, Once again, you come up with an interview of someone I do not know. Dwight Davis sounds like he thoroughly enjoys his broadcasting job. His pipe journey is similar to most of ours. Once you find the better pipes and tobaccos, it's all over. Pipe shows, what can one say? Uh, and then John says, what's this about engineers? Loosen up? Hmm. Yeah, John was an engineer. Uh, good interview. I will have to say that your music selections cover a very broad range. This one was something I'm sure I've not heard before. Of course, I wasn't around 100 years ago. Dwight does have the FM radio voice. Rant part two, hope you get results. Good luck. Uh, so far, no results. No noise, just crickets. Uh, rub, 
Ruben Eby writes, As for the future of pipe smoking, I think many people who are new to it that never really learn to properly pack, puff, and care for a pipe and whose first impressions of smoking are with a cheap pipe and OTC tobacco may drop out sooner than later. They may feel it's easier to buy cigars or go back to the cigarette or e-cigarettes. For those that have experienced the pleasures to be found in better grade pipes and good quality tobacco, the industry will continue to provide an endless variety of pipes in all price ranges and a steady supply of satisfying blends of tobacco. The ease of buying over the internet has changed everything. Brick and mortar dealers now have a strong presence online and there's never been a better time for the novice or old timer to find whatever they want and have it delivered to their front door. A pipe smoker is more disciplined in his or her habits and doesn't necessarily need to always be holding a lit pipe to constantly stroke his ego or massage his senses. He values the quality time spent with his pipe and looks forward to the next opportunity to spend a half hour or so relaxing with it. (laughs) Not according to Rich Esterman. Half hour is not long enough. Uh, And then he goes on to write, This is what I've been doing for 55 years and do not expect it to ever stop soon. Larry R. in uh, Washington. 55 years of pipe smoking, so that means that you've got to be at least uh, 61 years old. Uh, Voorhees writes, The more you rant, the less likely I'll ever fly commercial. I've never flown, and hearing your aggravation doesn't bode well for any future air travel from me. (laughs) I don't want to bash the airlines, but they're an easy target. Uh, I hope the airline works something out with you. Lack of response shows how little they care about their customers. Common problem these days is the wired world we live in. No accountability. And lastly, Mr. Motoyoshi writes, I see the future of pipe smoking the same way. A very foreseeable future is that brick and mortars will decline even more in the coming years. Online retailers, well, let me go back to that. Brick and mortars, actually, we're seeing more and more shops getting interested in pipes and pipe tobacco in the last couple of years. So the presence of pipes and pipe tobacco at brick and mortars is on on the uptick. Um, online retailers, he writes, are the way of the future, present, really. Uh, the only storefronts that can weather the storm are already established with a well-known name, solid following, and most likely have a website as well, see Smokers Haven. Thankfully, there is social media. Don't worry, this isn't link. This isn't a LinkedIn segue. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, what was once a group of scattered and uninformed enthusiasts became a cohesive group of like-minded people. Through forums, Facebook, or even Instagram, I can hear about how an acquaintance in Germany got a new pipe from an up-and-coming carver from Illinois. It really does so much for our hobby, and hopefully it can help it continue to flourish. Uh, I'll add to that that the Pipe Smokers Ephemeris and the NASPC Pipe Collector is also another forum-type way in print. Uh, he goes on to write, I wish I could have seen your face when Dwight said he can prep for a show in 45 minutes. Yeah, I wish I could have seen that too. Uh, remember, slow and steady wins the race, Brian. Don't worry, I'm sure you sound the way you do because you don't have any pestering engineers and abundance of tobacco smoke in your studio. Looking forward to the next show and the continuation of the rant. Uh, appreciate all the comments. Please 
post them on the forums or post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show page and follow the Pipes Magazine radio show on Facebook. And in just a minute, IPSD rave coming up. I wish I had a genie who could make it easy to order pipes and tobaccos online. You don't need a genie, sir. Visit fournoggins.com. They stock all your favorite pipes and tobaccos, and every order gets fast personal attention. Orders are packed carefully and shipped quickly by priority mail. Fournoggins.com. Fournoggins.com. I can still see you, you know. A bit rusty, sir. Fournoggins.com. We all know this Friday is International Pipe Smoking Day. It's every February 20th. In the last couple of years, we've moved the show around to tie in with it. We didn't want to do it and move it all the way to Friday, but... So this year, what I wanted to do is instead of doing a rant on a day when we're supposed to celebrate our pipe smoking hobby, our pipe smoking friends, our pipes, our tobaccos, I didn't want to rant or rave about a stupid airline or a cruise ship that can't figure out what day it is. I didn't want to rant or rave about hashtags or hash browns or whatever that is and didn't want to rant and rave about, you know, abbreviations and all that stuff. What I want everybody to do this week is to take the time and enjoy the enjoy your pipe and really be thankful for the fact that we have this hobby and we have the camaraderie of the Pipes Magazine forums. We have the opportunities, if we get to them, to go to pipe shows. We have the opportunities to form pipe clubs wherever we are. We have the opportunity, if anything, just to sit down and listen to this show once a week and smoke our pipe and know that we're not out there in a whole big world by ourselves. And if anything else, you know what? Find your favorite pipe and, uh, hey, just be thankful for having that pipe and that pipe being your friend and sitting with you and dealing with you, tapping on it and putting fire to it and putting it, you know, chomping on it in your mouth and that trusty old pipe just keeps on going with you. And uh, if you get a chance, you know what? Honor the uh, Native Americans and the Indians and have your own little uh, pipe smoking ritual on uh, International Pipe Smoking Day or sometime over the weekend. And if it's not freezing to death where you are, see if you can get outside and smoke your pipe so that people, again, once again, will be able to see what the modern pipe smoker looks like. We're no longer the old stodgy grandfather sitting with his pipe smoking a cherry blend no get out there and show them your uh super-sized magnums or your really tiny fancy whatevers or your favorite uh your, your favorite bent billiard get out there and uh be seen by people i'll be doing it while i'm driving around on saturday i'll puff on a pipe and have it hanging out the window of the car all right there you go a super-sized giant size magnum size episode of the pipes magazine radio show Hope you all enjoyed it. Thank you to Rich Esserman for joining me. Hope to see you all in uh, either St. Louis or in uh, Newark, New Jersey, for the pipe shows there. I'll be there. Thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to the McBaron Tobacco Company. And until next time. Happy trails.
If you celebrate International Pipe Smoking Day, you are definitely a pipe collector. <laughs> 